decades of poor research, a broken peer review system, false health and nutrition doctrines, inadequate regulation, and a culture dominated by powerful vested financial interests have combined to make the world's supermarkets into minefields of bad information and products that put our health, our lives, and our planet at risk. It's time to see beyond the two-for-one offers, the health aura products, and the shiny false promises on every shelf. It's time to let the real healing begin. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. I'm Melody and this Patterson Meta. Is reinventing and the this supermarket. Is reinventing the supermarket. Hi, today I'm excited to welcome investigative journalist and author Gary Torbs. All the way back in 2002, Gary Torbs started making waves in the nutrition world with his New York Times article, What If It's All Been a Big Fat Lie?, in which he began the process of deconstructing what had become the modern conventional wisdom that saturated fats caused heart disease in humans. Five years later, his book Good Calories, Bad Calories was released, and it set the stage for what we are now seeing as a mass re-evaluation of the role of saturated fats in our health, and specifically in relation to heart disease and the central fat cholesterol hypothesis that has driven heart disease treatments over the latter half of the 20th century. At the same time, Torbs was asking why so many of the critical questions had not yet been researched and why we hadn't taken a harder look at the possibility that carbohydrates, especially in the form of sugars and refined starches, might in fact be the real issue in not just heart disease, but obesity, diabetes, and other diseases that correlate to modern Western civilization. We're going to be discussing the low-fat dogma that has caused supermarkets to become mainly filled with low-fat, sugary, highly refined grain and starch-based products. We'll also be talking about Torb's restatement of the nature of caloric balance. Most of us know it as the calories in versus calories out conventional dietary advice. And how now we don't need to break the second law of thermodynamics in order to perceive in a new way the role of energy in obesity. In addition, we'll be talking about the obesity epidemic and why it's not about to end anytime soon. This is a discussion I really wish I'd heard when I was in my teens and 20s. So let's get going. My recent discussion with Gary Torbs, why nutrition science is so hard to get right, saturated fat, starches, sugar, and calories, how our dietary history plays out over decades, and are we really on the verge of a kind of fatpocalypse in this episode called Why the Obesity Epidemic Won't End Anytime Soon. Gary, you've been focused for quite a lot of years now on something we all need to be concerned about, and that's the issue of science, and especially the world of nutritional science, basically getting it wrong on some really very major and extremely fundamental concepts. Obviously, this is critically important because when the world of science does get something wrong, that plays out in a multitude of ways, from public policy all the way through to medical advice and how we look after our own health on a personal basis. 
So before we get into a broader discussion on the issue of calories, I think the first question to ask is, why is it that science gets so much wrong? Well, I mean, there are a lot of answers to that. All the easy things have been discovered. Okay, that's the first thing you have to realize about science is if something's easy, then it gets discovered. There's no controversy. We move on and you keep pushing the limits of knowledge back to the points where establishing what's really happening, what reliable knowledge is, gets to be exceedingly difficult. So by the time, you know, by the late 20th century, science is working on the hardest possible problems, or at least the hardest possible problems with the uh, equipment we have to assay those problems. And right. Questions about nutrition and human health are particularly difficult because you're dealing with live human beings and you're dealing with chronic disease states that develop over decades, you know, over the course of our lifetime. And the technologies we have for testing our hypotheses basically don't work over the course of lifetime. So you could you could test your studies in, in laboratory, your hypotheses in laboratory rodents uh, and do the study over most of their lifetime, but we're not laboratory rodents, you know, we're not rats and mice. And if you picked any other species, you might get an entirely different answer. Or you could do studies for short periods of time, months up into maybe a year or two. And then assume that what you see during that short period of time holds for a lifetime. But that's also an assumption. And part of establishing reliable knowledge in science is never assuming anything. You know, that one of the, the, right. the quotes that I find particularly meaningful in science was from the Nobel laureate physicist Louis Alvarez, who said, never trust what you can't prove or only trust what you can prove. There does seem to be an issue with science at uh, certainly over the at least the half, last half century, in which there's a almost a faith-based aspect to it. Well, that's what uh, that's a good way to phrase it, and it it, it sort of is faith-based. Back in beginning in the nineteen late nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, for the first time, researchers really tried to make definitive statements about the effect of diet on these chronic disease states. So prior to that, nutrition was mostly looking at the vitamin and mineral deficiency diseases, where you can actually demonstrate pretty easily that if you add vitamins and minerals back into the diet, you cure these disease states. But now in the 1960s, we started looking at the diseases like heart disease and um, <clears throat> diabetes and obesity. And now we have to start making assumptions, because now we get into these disease states where you can't do easy tests. It's interesting, isn't it, that they seem to have started with the micronutrients back in the probably the late 19th century and the early 20th century, and then they've moved into the macronutrients a bit later on, and I suspect that this is where a lot of the trouble seems to have started. Well, that's one way, yes. I mean, that's a good way to look at it. But like I said, simultaneously, you're going from sort of short-term uh, uh, short term disease conditions like these vitamin deficiency diseases, pellagra, beriberi, uh, the scurvy to these 
uh, longer-term chronic diseases. And as they do that, one of the interesting <clears throat> phenomena is in the 1960s, when they started looking at heart disease, um, you're looking at a disease that, that uh, half of the public in developed nations will die from. So you have this belief that it's killing, you know, every other human being on the planet or every other uh, relatively affluent human being on the planet. Therefore, there's this pressure to uh, to get the right answer. The, the investigators back then would say, we don't have time to wait for definitive evidence. We don't have time to cross the I's and and excuse me, dot the I's and cross the T's because people are dying out there every day by the, the, the tens of thousands. So we have to rush to get an answer. And the assumption is that if we get an answer and then later on we find out it's not quite right, we'll adjust what we believe to fit the evidence as it comes in as we actually have time to do these longer-term studies um, and really make sure we're right well, adjust the answer. And that was naive because as it turns out, once people claim they know the answer, they're very resistant to any evidence later on that they don't. So they decided that they could, uh, they didn't need the kind of reliable, uh, rigorous, methodical checks and balances that other sciences had evolved to assure that they got the right answer. Instead, they could kind of jump to conclusions, trust their hypotheses, have faith that they were right. So when you started this this really rigorous view, uh, particularly on, I guess, the, starting with the 20th century research on fats, um, this really kicked off a process, I think, there's, that has uh, created a kind of watershed moment in modern nutrition history. I do consider your work t uh, to be work that has incredibly uh, influenced some of the great thinkers out there and, you know, other great thinkers other than yourself, obviously. But I think it started with your New York Times article, the uh, uh, what if it's all been a big fat lie? Would you agree that there's sort of a watershed moment there? And, and was that a watershed moment in your own mind? Well, actually, Short answer, I mean, yes, in, in a sense, that was a watershed moment. I do want to say, um, when I started doing this research, I preceded that with a, two very lengthy exposés in the journal Science, one on the salt blood pressure connection, <clears throat> and then one on the, the science of the low-fat diet. Um, and there were many people, actually, who had been questioning this dogma before me, um, and questioning the science, uh, Tom Moore, a researcher in Washington in particular, Ufi Ravenskov was another, um, and then the diet book, physicians who ended up writing diet books, which did really well, you know, Mike and Mary Dan Eads and Protein Power. The, so there was a stream of people, I was coming along <clears throat> in a wave of people who had never really ebbed, who had always been questioning this, this doctrine, I had access that they didn't have. That was the advantage with the New York Times story, um, and because of my science journal. So getting on the cover of the New York Times magazine in America <clears throat> can really, you know, that will be a watershed moment. And, and, and um, so my work basically 
took a wave that had been building and then and then helped break that wave to some extent. Um, and then simultaneously, you get on the cover of the New York Times Magazine with a uh, very controversial story. You get a large book advance, and the large book advance allowed me to spend the next four to five years of my life writing, um, researching and writing what's called good calories, bad calories in the U.S. and the diet delusion, and, and uh, probably in Australia, certainly in the U.K. So... Uh, and it was with uh, What If It's All Been a Big Fat Lie that I really tackled the weight issue directly. The previous piece in science on the low-fat dogma was looking more at the heart disease story. I had to convince myself that the science implicating saturated fat was as bad as it is in order to then make the next step, which was to ask this question, why is it that low-carb, high-fat diets seem to have such efficacy in, in treating obesity and what is it about the carbohydrate content of the diet that right. seems to drive weight gain what i found interesting just in uh the prep that i was doing to talk to you and the focus that you brought to the issue of the calorie with your work in good calories bad calories is that there's just so many big important pieces to this puzzle and I sit down and try and think oh how do I want this conversation to flow and it's actually quite difficult because there's there are very large issues it's not like there's one big issue here there's a whole lot of really large issues that that interlock such as the as you were just talking about the issue of the demonization of saturated fat in the diet how that played into this low fat diet dogma and the increase in obesity that there's just so many things to talk about what do you think is sort of the best area to start on in this discussion because you've done you've done the talk a lot more than I have well this is the way we think about it uh, at the Nutrition Science Initiative, NUSI, which is this not-for-profit I co-founded. Um, basically, the modern nutrition science is built on three fundamental pillars. Okay, the, the basic pillar is this idea that we get fat because we overeat. Um, right. We take in more calories than we expend. That is at the heart of everything we believe. That's the cause of obesity. Seems to be somehow predetermined by the laws of physics. It's not, but that's the fundamental pillar. And then there's these two co-pillars, for lack of a better word. <clears throat> One is this idea that saturated fat causes heart disease by raising cholesterol levels. And that beginning in the 1960s, all modern nutrition ideas had to be able to be reconciled with this idea that saturated fat was the primary cause of heart disease. And if they couldn't, they would be rejected. Right. So this idea that carbohydrates, for instance, is what causes obesity cannot be reconciled with the idea that saturated fat causes heart disease. So you hold on to the saturated fat, you get rid of the carbohydrate theory. And then the third pillar is this idea that a mostly plant diet is the healthiest diet. And this goes along with the idea that these studies of observational epidemiology <clears throat> is capable of establishing causal information about the nature of a healthy diet. 
So you could look at all three of those pillars and then begin to question, which is more or less what I did. What's the evidence base for these? And you go back in time looking for when they were accepted as, you know, as doctrine, as, as reliable knowledge. And you look at the level of controversy there and what evidence people are providing for and against the research. And then what I did, that other... I had the opportunity to do for the first time in history that other journalists or commentators not, as you could go even further back in time to see if there are other alternative hypotheses that fit the data better. But right. the fundamental issue is this question of why we get fat, because you could go back 2,000 years and find people linking diabetes to weight gain, obesity, you could find them linking, you know, heart disease was clearly related to obesity. Um, even when Ansel Keys, Nina Teicholz would have talked a lot about Ansel Keys, I imagine when Ansel Keys first got into this question of, you know, what causes heart disease, uh, he knew that there was this association between overweight and obesity and heart disease. And he thought, um, and by the 1980s, when we locked in the low-fat dogma with this series of um, <clears throat> this National Institutes of Health Consensus Conference and series of government reports that came out, one of the fallbacks on telling people to eat less fat was always a belief that because saturated fat, well, dietary fat has such dense calories, if we eat less of it, we'll lose weight. And if we lose weight, we won't have as high a risk of heart disease. And it all comes down to this question of you know, what's driving obesity and overweight. And it all looks so simple too. It looks like it works. People explain it as, you know, you have more than twice as many calories in the same amount of uh, fat as you do in carbohydrates, for instance. And so the, the logic sounds like it works. And I think there's a bit of a trap that that uh, certainly nutrition science has fallen into, where this obvious logic is taken to just be truth. And that's the problem. I mean, it always did seem obvious. I believed it. If you go back, actually, to my very first the New York Times Magazine article, what if it's all been a big fat lie? <clears throat> While questioning this entire paradigm, I simultaneously clearly obesity is caused by taking in more calories than it's been. And... <clears throat> Now I would say clearly that is probably the most naive statement that uh, any scientific research community could come up with, let alone believe. So the idea is if you get fatter, you have to take in more energy than you expend. That's what the laws of physics tell us. You know, if a system gets bigger, it doesn't matter what that system is. If it gets more massive, like planet accreting mass to form a bigger planet in the early solar system. I mean, you know, it just doesn't matter. It's got to take in more mass and mass is energy than it expends. Therefore, you have this sort of simplistic notion that when something gets bigger, it takes in more energy than it expends. And then into that, you assert this causality where you say, well, therefore, it got bigger or he got bigger or she got bigger because they took in more. And I've thought a lot about how to describe it. It's like if we were talking about, instead of this conversation being about diet, it was about wealth management, then you asked me, why do people get rich? And I said, well, they take in more money than they expend. And 
clearly that's true, right? I yes, mean, if, exactly. If they get rich, clearly they're making more money than they spend. But you would, if I was your wealth management person, you'd fire me if that was your investment strategy. Right. But this has been the cal- this whole notion of calories in, calories out. Again, it's got this beautiful poetry to it. And it drives, it's still endemic as someone who's watching the public discourse on this as part of the work that I do as a strategist. It's still the prevailing perspective all the way from the everyday person through to the the doctor that you're going to see. And that is that if you are getting fat, it's because you are taking in more calories than you expend. And therefore, the assumption is as long as you stop taking in more calories than you expend, then you're going to lose weight. But what you are saying is that's not how it works. Yeah, it's sort of, I mean, another metaphor, think about if we were talking about climate change. So the the atmosphere is heating up, we don't know why. And the fact that it's heating up tells us it's taking in more energy than it's letting out. Right. Um, but we don't discuss it in those terms because you don't learn anything by doing that. Um, the fact is, if the climate change science is right, which we'll assume it is, then the atmosphere is trapping, and not all the atmosphere, certain layers of the atmosphere are trapping certain uh, electromagnetic rays, not all of them, some of them, you know, certain parts of the spectrum. And we know why that's happening in theory because other certain molecules are being you know, released from uh, the use of fossil fuels and other purposes that, that uh, collect in this part of the atmosphere. And so you've got this whole theory that's got nothing to do with the fact that the atmosphere is taking in more energy than it expends. In obesity, the, you've got this problem, which is not that people eat too much or exercise too little. They're, they've, they've got too much fat accumulating on their bodies. That's sort of first principles. And you, so, And I've had this argument with investigators uh, researchers, even physicians, where you say, look, some, somebody comes into your office and they weigh 80 pounds too much. What's the first thing you're going to talk to them about? What's the first thing you see? And they'll immediately go to, well, obviously they're eating too much. And I go, no, 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 obviously they weigh too much. You have no idea how much they eat. So if you just think of it as a fat accumulation problem, First principles, as Marcus Aurelius would say, something I know because uh, I watched, um, you know, Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal Lecter mm-hmm. says that, Clarice Starling about Marcus Aurelius. Um, first principles, they, 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 they're too fat. And if they're too fat, you ask this question, what regulates fat accumulation? So I don't care right now how much they eat and exercise because I have no idea how much they eat and exercise. All I know is they have too much fat on their body. And if you pay attention to the fat on their body and you ask what regulates fat tissue, and this was all worked out beginning in the 1960s, it ends up becoming basically about a series of, you know, hormones and enzymes that determine whether or not fat cells will take up excess fat, whether they'll hold on to that excess fat. When the fatty acids are released into your circulation, there are others, you know, enzymes that will determine whether or not um, your uh, lean tissue, your other cells in your body metabolize those fatty acids or continue to burn uh, the glucose in your bloodstream instead. And all of that is, again, is a hormonal, enzymatic questions. It's 1960s era science. 
And when you actually read the textbooks and the, the reports, both back then and the, the current versions, what you see is, for all intents and purposes, the fat accumulating in your fat cells is regulated or controlled or determined by the amount of insulin you're secreting and the response of these various enzymes, both in the fat tissue and elsewhere, to that insulin. And then there are other hormones involved as well, the hormone glucagon, uh, stress hormones. But the, the hormone that connects your diet to fat accumulation is primarily insulin, and we secrete insulin in response. Uh, again, uh, our insulin levels are going to go up and down with our, the carbohydrate content of our diet. So if you just take this purely biological perspective, you know, here's a person who's got too much fat on their body. I go to look to see what regulates fat accumulation. Lo and behold, it turns out that fat accumulation happens to be regulated primarily by the hormone insulin. Insulin is, your insulin levels are going to be determined more or less by quantity and the type of carbohydrates you're consuming. And now you have a theory of obesity that says instead of eating less and exercising more, it just says reduce the carbohydrate content of the diet, particularly the highly processed grains and sugars, and those have different effects on the insulin in different mechanisms or work, but those are the two that you would expect to cause obesity, and those are the ones you would want to get rid of if you were trying to re prevent or reverse it. I just want to pause for a moment and say that as you're saying all of this, with the knowledge that I've gained over uh, certainly the last six or seven years, that makes a lot of sense. But when I first encountered what you were writing in Good Calories, Bad Calories, I, I was not ignorant on the subject of uh, the low carbohydrate diet. I had um, in my own battle against obesity prior to that, I had actually with with limited success, tried the Atkins diet. So I had this understanding of insulin and carbohydrates and the issues that I might have with weight as a result of that, although I had seen mixed results. But what good calories, bad calories did, and I think this is a point that, you know, it's just so important that people understand it really clearly. And it turned on its head this notion of why people are getting fat. And, and it, you know, I had to look at myself at that very moment and ask, you know, oh, my God, is this, is it maybe it's not completely me to blame for this? Maybe there's, you know, I'm just doing the wrong things. Maybe I'm getting not the best advice in terms of how to lose the weight. But... It, I was reading good calories, bad calories for years, Gary, because <laughs> it's a very, it's densely packed with information. And I think I was well into my second reading before I encountered, uh, and I believe it was a doctor that I encountered online, and this had to be around 2009, um, who explained to me, he said, what you are not getting out of out of uh, what Torbs has written is that you don't get fat because you're eating too much 
and exercising too little, you get you start to eat more and exercise less because you're getting fat. So, and I know you've said this, but I I just don't think we can um, harp on it enough and we need to make sure it's really simply understood. That's a complete, the complete reverse of everything we've ever thought about why people are getting fat. And it's so important because we live in this world where where, uh, the obese uh, population are in fact the the last people it seems who it's politically correct to negatively stereotype and they do pay a pretty pretty hefty price in their personal lives uh, and I, I know because I've been there uh, if they become obese and they're being blamed for this they're being blamed for being lazy they're being blamed for being gluttonous and what what you had said is, hang on a minute, maybe it's not like that. And I think a physicist like you is, uh, is what it took to ta- have the courage to actually look at the second law of thermodynamics and say, well, hang on, you don't have to break the law of therm- any laws of thermodynamics in order to restate it in a way that it works. Is that fair for me to say? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I don't think courage had anything to do with it maybe um well you uh, do get attacked i've seen you be attacked a lot over the years for actually not not uh or not understanding the laws of thermo thermodynamics when i would suggest that you are one of the people in the nutrition discussion uh who really do understand it that's possible what i mean is that you only get attacked after you make the claim so actually making the claim doesn't require courage because you don't realize how you're going to get attacked (laughs) and afterwards you know i guess you could stop making the claim but it's just it's this is an idea i mean you could think of it it's almost like an idea that's that's got this too big to fail aspect to it it's so stupid yeah. This idea that we get fat because we overeat, because we take in too many calories. It seems obvious. It's so stupid that it's hard for the research community to even grasp their head around the fact that it could be wrong, because then they have to accept why is it that we believe something this innate. In fact, I gave a lecture, one of my Why We Get Fat lecture, <clears throat> which makes this point in a number of different ways to researchers back in 2009 at the Pennington Biomedical Research Center, which is in uh, one of the leading obesity research centers in the United States. And afterwards, one of the investigators raised his hand from the audience and he said, Mr. Taubes, um, is it safe to say that one subtext of your talk is that you think we are all idiots? I actually said, you know, I said, I said, no, I mean, I believe the same thing you did. I just never really thought about it until, and once you think about it, clearly the laws of thermodynamics have nothing to do, have no more to do with the question of why we get fat than any other human physiological, biological, pathological disease state, you know, but we never evoke it anywhere except in obesity. So you could go through a uh, you know, medical textbooks, and I'm pretty confident that if the laws of thermodynamics are in the index, they're only in the index in relationship to obesity, whereas there's a whole slew of diseases where you're, I mean, virtually all of them, where things are either uh, 
decaying, eroding, in which case you say that they're letting out more energy than they're taking in or they're, <clears throat> they're, they're accumulating mass like uh, atherosclerotic plaques on your artery walls. Nobody would say atherosclerotic plaques are caused by the, the plaque tissue, whatever the, the baseline cells taking in more calories than they expend. Um, tumors are getting bigger. Cancers are getting bigger. Nobody says it's caused because the, the tumors take in more energy. It's just these are the laws of physics. We're talking about biology. I just have to jump in and say that this notion is so important because the, I can't think of anything else, as you were just saying, in medicine where they apply the laws of thermodynamics as the solution to the problem. And if you rolled up to your doctor tomorrow and you had a high fever caused by an infection, the doctor would not tell you that you had a temperature imbalance or a heat imbalance in, in your body and that by simply adjusting the, you know, the temperature balance in your body, that's very much an energy balance story. You could argue that, I mean, it might help to take an ice bath, but that's not the It won't cure the infection. Or isn't because you're taking it. And you, you can make the same argument with like edema, which is swelling. So you've got fluid retention. Nobody's going to say, well, then you should, this is caused because you were drinking too much water. Right. Therefore, you should drink less. And that's the solution. And by doing so, in all these cases, you're going to miss the underlying physiological disturbance and quite likely kill people. So I have to say that when when I went through this process, it and I'm an open-minded person who takes in information and will take it on board, it was a radical new perspective for me. And I, I say this because I'm looking at supermarkets around the world who, by the way, that's where the rubber hits the road. And calories and the amount of calories and the portioning of calories is driving an awful lot of dangerous food consumption uh, where people are actually purchasing their food because this this lens of looking at the world through the calorie is is still the uh, prevailing paradigm if you like so I'm very interested in how we can change that paradigm and I'm sort of looking at what the process was that I went through I I had to go back after I understood finally that after the penny dropped, okay, if I'm getting fatter and then I'm eating more, I'm getting fatter not because I ate more, I'm, I'm eating more because I'm getting fatter. So something is causing that. I, that was a really difficult thing for me to come to grips with and I think a lot of people have trouble with it. So looking back at good calories, bad calories, what you did next was very important and that was you demonstrated other examples such as puberty uh, as examples of where regardless of the energy you uh, you take in if you're a particular kind of human you're going to gain fat or you're going to gain muscle and it doesn't matter how many calories you're consuming could you talk a little bit about that okay well this is again just using common sense and this was based on arguments that were made by clinical investigators in germany and austria prior to the Second World War. I mean, these were researchers who really understood uh, metabolism and endocrinology, the study of hormones and genetics. And so basically, you could look at other 
human growth phenomenon. And the first one, obvious example, growing children. Growing children are taking in more calories than they expend. And the reason they are is because they're growing. And for those of us who have children who start to hit you know, puberty, their teenage years, we have these sort of stock cliched complaints. They're eating us out of house and home. Right. They're lying around the house all day long. They're sort of, they're, they're constantly hungry and they're sedentary because they're growing. And their body needs this fuel to build new tissue, new muscles, new lean tissue, new fat to make the organs bigger. Everything's getting bigger. The body is working ferociously to make that happen. And it needs fuel to do it. And so they're hungry all the time. And because their body is working so hard, they tend to be, you know, they don't have that the energy to go run marathons or to pop out of bed at 7 in the morning and cook breakfast right. for us. You know, puberty is the same thing. Boys and girls enter puberty with roughly the same amount of fat on their bodies. As they go through fat, they both get bigger. The boys get taller, they get heavier. The girls get taller, they get heavier. Boys tend to lose fat and gain muscle. And girls tend to gain fat, and they gain fat in very specific places. They don't gain it all over. They gain it there at the hips and butt, breasts. Um, when they come out of puberty, the girls have 50% more fat on their bodies than the boys do. They both took in more calories than they expended. We know that because they got bigger and their bodies changed. But right. the calorie consumption has nothing to do with these whether or not they gain fat or muscle. That was all basically driven by hormones, male sex hormones, female sex hormones, and the the places where the women put on fat are determined by how particular receptors and enzymes on cells in those places respond to these other hormones that help signal that they should take up fat or not. So it's all this combination of sort of hormones and enzymes responding on different ways. And the question would be, why would you expect it to be any differently when people just get generically fatter? Why do you go from a condition that's very clearly regulated by, again, you know, hormones and enzymes. <laughs> the hormones signaling the enzymes. I mean, it, basically that's it. Versus, you know, this sort of uh, they're eating too much nonsense. And the reason you say they're eating too much, the only reason you know if someone's eating too much is that they're getting fatter. The technical term for this is hyperphagia. And right. I was just thinking, there was a whole conference on hyperphagia that was held a couple years ago, and I was looking at the... Um, the uh, program for it and reading the talks that were given and people could not define hyperphagia, which is eating too much, independent of whether or not the person was fat. So if you have a 15-year-old boy who eats constantly, as many do, as I did when I was 15, but isn't fat, they're not hyperphagic. They're not eating too much. If they are fat, they could be not eating at all and you would still say they eat too much. So again, it's you have to get past this and ask the question, what are the foods I eat? How do they affect these hormones and enzymes that regulate fat accumulation? And because excess fat accumulation associates with heart disease, diabetes, and virtually every other major chronic disease, including cancer and Alzheimer's, you then have to ask the question, if I avoid the foods that will make my fat tissue want to accumulate fat or my liver cells want accumulate fat, because that's a unique problem as well, then I'm probably going to minimize my risk of all these other diseases. And as you pointed out, you know, these 
foods that seem to trigger fat accumulation have to make up probably 80 or 90 percent of the food sold in the supermarket, the modern supermarket, and they're the cheapest source of calories. So they're the ones where you get the greatest profit margin by selling them. That's the problem. It's also very interesting because certainly young people, particularly adolescents, as you point out, when they're going through that uh, big growth spurt in life, they seem to be able to eat all of those terrible things, the, the worst things that are in the supermarket. They, they can eat all the highly refined carbs, lots and lots of sugar, and often they're not gaining fat as a result of it. They just, they're pouring it in and they, they stay lean. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't seem to matter at that stage of life, for not for everybody, obviously, but for many in that in that uh, in their teens and their early twenties, whatever they're eating is being obviously turned into energy. Well, and this is one of the you know this one I talked about the limits of science and the limits of nutrition science. So what you're saying is clearly, I have a seven year old who, you know, he's. In an ideal world, he would eat only carbohydrates, and in a really ideal world, he would eat only very sweet carbs. Um, and he's thinner than his 10-year-old brother, who eats much more carefully. Um, if I were to do my studies on this 7-year-old, I would demonstrate that at the age of 7, these foods have no effect on fat accumulation. If anything, they give him energy. They may even make him seem a little smarter in the short term. Um, you know, we all know the benefits when we were in college of having a Coca-Cola before an exam. Right. Um, the, uh, you know, so, but then the question is, what are these foods doing over the course of his life? And what damage is done by being forced to metabolize them and doing such a good job of it at age 7 and 10 and maybe 15 and 20 and 25? You end up with a, like a performance-enhancing drug of some kind. You end up having chronic damage done that by the time you're in your 30s or 40s, now you're gaining weight and you have trouble stopping it. Right. So um, there's, there's an underlying metabolic damage that's taking place even at that young age is, is what's likely. Yeah, and you have no idea. And if you only study the seven or the typical thing for nutrition researchers to do because they're in academia when they would do their studies to do their studies on college students. Right. Because that's who's walking by the lab. That's who you could recruit. You put up a poster in the cafeteria saying, I'll give you 50 bucks if you come eat this food and I watch what happens to you. So they're not studying 40 or 50-year-olds or 60-year-olds who have now gotten obese or really you know, fighting weight problems. And they're certainly not studying from the time they're 20 until they're 50. So you end up with a lot of misconceptions and a lot of bad science. And then, the, again, the question is, you know, what should we believe? What's the most likely thing to be true, considering how ambiguous the science is? I just finished a book on sugar that'll be out in the U.S. at the end of the year. It's called The Case Against Sugar. And I say, look, the, the evidence... It's ambiguous. If this was a court of law, I would not get a conviction based on <laughs> right. evidence against sugar. But I have to make a decision how to eat myself and how to feed my family. And again, if it was a court of law, I would have enough evidence that I would get an indictment. 
Right. And based on the indictment, I am willing to personally make the decision that I'm going to consume as little sugar or high fructose corn syrup as I can. And I'm going to try and keep my children's consumption to a minimum. And that's the best we could do. But again, it's, you know, the science is ambiguous. You can't demonstrate these things with the um, uh, standard of, you know, unequivocal guilt. Right. I, you can paint a compelling picture. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Certainly the, the story of sugar is starting to filter through uh, more clearly now. We're certainly seeing a lot more public discourse about the dangers of sugar so uh, and we're seeing sugar consumption falling uh, in general across the developed nations yet we're still seeing obesity rates increasing so it would seem to me that there are a cluster of causes of obesity and that sugar is a part of that but not the whole story well again it's a year you may be right, but this is the problem with that kind of observational evidence. So I'll give you another example. Um, cigarette smoking in the United States peaked per capita in roughly 1965, a year after this famous Surgeon General's report linking smoking to lung cancer. Cancer, lung cancer incidents peaked 30 years later. Right. So Lung cancer continued to go up long after cigarette smoking started to go down. And there's a natural assumption, especially when you're trying to defend your product against accusations, to say, well, maybe what we have here is a one-to-one -one correspondence. So, you know, if cigarettes go up, lung cancer goes up. If cigarettes go down, lung cancer goes down. But there are then all kinds of other possible things. So let's say there's a threshold level of smoking which tends to, well, you know, and most people promote lung cancer. And then there's a period of time, say 20 years, uh, for that lung cancer to appear once you've hit that threshold. And now you could easily create a model in which, you know, the per capita number of smokers in America peaks in 64, but it takes 30 years before you, you know, for the next 20 years, you still see the effect of the rising Right. Number of smokers up until 1964 and the number of people who had passed over that threshold. So that underlying metabolic damage that's being done even in our youth may take 20 or 30 years to properly express itself as obesity not or as the, diabetes or a variety of issues. Complicated, not just in your youth, in your mother's life. Because when she was consuming these foods and was pregnant with you, her, the environment in which your body developed, the womb, the intrauterine environment, was different than that of a woman, of a child whose mother is not consuming any sugar. This so you were actually born, you know, just your mm -hmm. mother's diet and her mother's diet all influence your predisposition to obesity and diabetes. 
So this so is interesting, Gary, because what what you're saying, and we because we're seeing such a move uh, against sugar, that there's a potential that we can we'll move through the next decade, perhaps, and sugar will be reduced in a lot of products. We'll see overall sugar consumption falling, uh, certainly in the developed nations in the near term, but we may still continue to see obesity rising during that time. Precisely. So that's the, the kind of issues that um, complicate the public discussion. You could think of it as, you know, my second book on this subject, where I took good calories, bad calories, and I, I basically turned the, it into a, a airplane reading polemic so people could get it without having to spend years reading it. Um, so why we get fat, the book's called Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It. And those are actually two separate questions. So what is causing this massive increases we've seen around the world in obesity and diabetes? And there's a lot of different hypotheses from everybody eating more and exercising less as you get more westernized and to you know, the sugar and grain content of the diet, the, to the vegetable oils. Uh, there are people I know who think that pharmaceuticals in the groundwater, you know, we take an antidepressant, you peed some of it away, that gets into the water, other people are drinking it. You know, you can think of an infinite right. number of possible hypotheses. The simplest one, which is, you know, one of the guiding principles of science is called Occam's razor, and the idea is basically go for the simplest possible hypothesis. Sim Einstein was paraphrased as saying it should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. So the simplest possible right. hypothesis is it's a sugar and white flour in effect. People start consuming that and you start getting these metabolic disturbances. They start getting their blood sugar goes up, their insulin goes up. Uh, when they get pregnant, the babies are born in an environment with high where they see more blood sugar and they develop uh, their, their pancreases respond as they're, you know, in the womb to develop more insulin secreting cells. So then they're born and they're more predisposed to over secrete insulin to these same carbohydrates. And you have this sort of, you know, ongoing problem. The question then is, so if you want to fix the populations, the first step is to get rid of or minimize the consumption of, I would say, sugars first, meaning, you know, sucrose and high fructose corn syrup and then these highly processed grains second, because right. those are the simplest possible explanation for why we get fat and diabetic. And then reversing it in people who are the end results of this generational phenomenon is a separate question of what to do about it. And that's where you move into, you know, these very low carbohydrate, high fat diets, which may be necessary to reverse the problem because we're now also predisposed not just to get fat but to remain fat once we get that. It would yeah. seem to me that there's there's an argument for studying people who remain lean and healthy in spite of their diet. Um, there is, except you could easily be misguided because these are like, you know, the, our, the my seven-year-old son or the 15-year-old we discussed who can tolerate the carbs in the diet. So, you know, to give you an example, I'm allergic to corn. I've always been allergic to corn. I get what my wife kindly calls gastrointestinal distress when I eat <laughs> corn. 
Um, if you want to know about the effect corn has on people like me, it doesn't do any good to study people who are not allergic to corn. <laughs> right. Because they're, you know, so it's sort of, and one of the issues, what you see, like when you do these epidemiologic surveys of populations, what you see, for instance, is that people who eat more sugar, or at least admit to eating more sugar, tend to be leaner than people who eat less sugar. So you could easily conclude, as the sugar industry tried to do in the 80s, that that means sugar is a weight loss drug because lean people consume more than fat people. The alternative is lean people can consume a lot of sugar, just as uh, somebody who's not allergic to corn can consume a lot of corn without getting gastrointestinal distress. And I can, so they eat more corn, I eat less corn. Um, doesn't mean corn prevents this problem. It means that I eat less because corn causes this problem. There's no way to determine that right. by doing these observational studies. You have to do what's called randomized controlled trials. The medical community likes to say they're the gold standards for establishing truth. That's the cliche you often see journalism use. They're actually the only standard for right. determining truth and, and, you know, reliable knowledge, um, which is unfortunate. But well, epidemiology, I tend to not think very highly of it personally. It, it's, uh, it certainly has been used as if in the last 30 or 40 years, as if it's giving us proof. Well, in, and that's, that's... in the world, and it simply cannot do that because it's people filling in filling in information forms, right? Well, it's not just that. Again, there's no, when you, what these studies do, so to give you an example, the Nurses Health Study at, uh, out of the Harvard School of Public Health is one of the most famous. So they follow, they, they identify tens of thousands of nurses. They say, hey, these people are nurses. Uh, they're used to filling out forms. They're used to dealing with uh, accurate medical information. We could ask them. We could come up with a survey, ask them what they eat, what uh, prescription drugs they take, their smoking habits or other lifestyle habits. And then we can follow them for 20 years and look and see what diseases they get or don't get. And then we could make associations. So we end up saying, for instance, that these nurses that ate, drank a lot of coffee, had more or less of disease Y than nurses who didn't. And nurses who consumed a lot of saturated fat or consumed a lot of bacon might have had more or less diabetes or heart disease and nurses that didn't. And you end up with these associations between disease states and dietary factors and lifestyle factors, but those associations hold no causal information because there's actually an infinite number of those associations. My mother, when I was young, used to say, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? <laughs> exactly. You know, so I, I'm pretty confident that obesity rates and the price of tea in China moved up or down an association over the course of 30 years, but they obviously have nothing to do with each other. Or may, actually, maybe they do. Maybe when tea is cheap, more people drink tea, less people drink Coca-Cola. Um, Therefore, Coca-Cola increases obesity rates. So maybe they do have something to do with each other. The point is, we have no way to know. Right. It's probably better to actually plot the stock value of Starbucks 
against the obesity rate because <laughs> I mean again there's just there's no literally no causal information the few times those studies have been able to identify disease causing agents lifestyle causing agents of disease and the, the great victory of observational epidemiology was linking cigarette smoking to lung cancer. But lung cancer was an extremely rare disease. And smokers had a 20 to 30-fold increased risk of getting lung cancer than non-smokers. And that effect is so huge, that 20 to 30-fold increased risk, that it was virtually impossible to imagine any other way to explain it other than cigarettes causing lung cancer. Not that the cigarette industry didn't try. Right. What we're now talking about with these studies are increased risks of rather than 20 to 30 fold, which is, you know, 200, excuse me, 2,000 to 3,000 percent, we're talking about tens of a percent. Right. And the people who did the problem is, is these epidemiologic studies started being done. They're relatively inexpensive and they're relatively easy. And you could look at the difference in disease states over 20, 30 years. Remember, you can't do a carefully controlled trial where you take a thousand subjects and you randomize 500 to one diet, 500 to another, and keep them on those diets for 20 to 30 years. That's effectively impossible to do. And if it was possible, it would cost, I don't know, $5 billion to pick a number. Right. So instead, People rationalized and they said, well, yeah, sure, these studies have trouble establishing causality. What they meant is they're actually possible to establish. And you got this series, this sequence of basically 20 to 30 years of rationalizing. And then you get to the point where people say, well, you know, the, the leading figures in the field are investigators who have been doing these epidemiologic studies for 20 to 30 years. They're never going to admit that their studies are incapable of doing what they're claiming they're going to do, that they are doing. Uh, the government's been funding it for 20 to 30 years. The, if Nobody wants to admit that they're, they were idiots, for lack of a better word. So you end up with this entire institutional pathology where we base our dietary advice on the results of these observations that are incapable of establishing whether or not that dietary advice is correct. I just want to point out that into that uh, institutional pathology that you're talking about, it comes the corporations. You've got certainly the big soft drink companies who really have in many ways, made a killing yes. <laughs> uh, by <laughs> promoting the idea that that you are personally responsible for your calories in versus calories out, and therefore calories have worked to build their business. The, so that calorie or caloric balance model is underpinning this huge business of providing sugar, essentially. Well, and this is what, in, in my sugar book, I have a chapter on the history of this uh, calorie balance model, and the chapter is called The Gift That Keeps On Giving. Yes, indeed. Um, you know, the, the, you can't blame the industry, really, because particularly with sugar, and I, I, I wrote about this um, with the help of a, of a 
amazing woman named uh, Kristen Carnes, who did the original data, found the original evidence. Um, back in the 1970s, when the sugar issue was really reaching a peak here in the United States, and their research and England and around the world, the research is arguing that sugar was a unique cause of heart disease and um, diabetes. They were doing so against a building consensus that the problem was saturated fat and just too many calories. And so the sugar industry basically had the decision to make where they said, are we going to believe this fringe element that says it's only sugar? Or are we going to believe the huge proportion of uh, researchers and investigators who are saying it's saturated fat and just consuming too many calories? Um, this wasn't the case in the cigarette industry. With the cigarette case, very few researchers or physicians are actually defending cigarettes once the science started coming out. But in the sugar case, the nutrition community had so uh, misconceived the issues and had screwed up so mightily that the sugar industry only had to take advantage of what the nutrition and obesity researchers and cardiologists were telling them. And this is where I differ from some of the other commentators. I don't blame the industry so much. The industry is always going to try and maximize their profits. That's what they're supposed to do. They were given this gift. And the soda industry, everyone said, look, it's not about the sugar and the Coke. It's about how much Coke you drink. If you're a little fat, drink less or exercise more. That's been the conventional wisdom. We're finally getting that wisdom shifted. But even now, I would say probably 99% of the you know, physicians, public health authorities fundamentally believe this is a calorie issue. What they argue is that sugar... Uh, makes up a disproportionate amount of those calories. So again, if you cut back on the sugar, you'll somehow consume less and then you'll lose weight rather than looking at the again, metabolic endocrinological effects of consuming sugar that happen to be, especially liquid sugars that happen to be entirely different from those of consuming other macronutrients. So do you think it's more about the ratio of nutrients as macronutrients in particular about the ratio of um, carbohydrates that a person is consuming relative to proteins and fats or is it about the absolute amounts well again I, that's going to differ for everyone so that's a, a question of uh, <clears throat> you know independent predisposition individual predisposition um, I have a a hiking partner this summer here in Berkeley who, uh, when he was 17 years old, weighed 400 pounds, and now he weighs 200 pounds. He's able to stay at 200 relatively effortlessly as long as he eats effectively no carbohydrates that aren't in green leafy vegetables and eats an enormous amount of fat. Right. Um, What's your response to um, – sorry, I'll let you finish that before I ask yeah, this. I was just going to say he's an extreme case. Um, you know, I know plenty of people who seem to be completely healthy eating a relatively high-carb diet, and I have friends who can consume sugar without getting fat or apparently manifesting the metabolic disorder that comes with it. But that doesn't mean that sugar, and just as, you know, another example, there are people, um, we know that cigarettes cause lung cancer. Yeah. 
but something like 90% of smokers will never get lung cancer. They can smoke without getting lung cancer. I mean, I used to be a smoker. If I could, if I knew I wasn't going to get lung cancer, I might go back to smoking. And right. It's a very useful drug when you're a writer. Nicotine is, you know, great way to stay at your desk, keep focused. Right up there with caffeine, which is probably safer. (laughs) Yes. So again, these are the, you know, the issue is um, it's going to be different depending on your genotype. And it's going to be different depending on your epigenetics, uh, the conditions, you know, that uh, you developed in your mother's womb. And all of this is going to mean that, you know, For instance, I mean, even growing up, I have an older brother. My older brother was lean and muscular and an endurance runner. I was thicker, tended towards fat. I became a football player. Anatomy is destiny sometimes, Freud said. Um, You know, we ate the same foods. And we ate as much as humanly possible. We both did. Um, We competed to eat as fast as possible. Because if I didn't eat it at dinner, he would eat it. You know, and yet we had different body types and we responded he could still eat carbs I can't so it's hard to judge I think the, the you know the when I referred talk about this in my book you're talking about both the quantity and the quality of the carbohydrates we're consuming and then what you have to replace them with and quantity I mean they're you know all of Southeast Asia these people ate high carb diets and until recently didn't see obesity and diabetes. That was the very thing I was about to ask you is that is that that's the example that's often brought up. It's that in Asia there's this quite significant consumption of rice and it's a fairly high ratio in terms of the diet in many places in terms of total uh, caloric consumption. Uh, yet they don't or haven't had the history of obesity. Well, and so here's the issue again, and this is the sort of fundamental thing. Once populations start eating Western diets and eating Western lifestyles, they start getting these, for lack of a better word, Western diseases, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, (coughs) gout, cavities. I mean, you mentioned, you know, what is it about? So you could take those Southeast Asians move them, have them immigrate to the United States or Canada or Australia. And over the course of two or three generations, they will start getting obese and diabetic. Breast cancer rates will start going up until they match those of the other ethnic groups in the population. And the question is, what causes it? So what's the difference between their lifestyles in Southeast Asia and their diets and their lifestyles in the United States or Canada or Europe or Australia. And there's a lot of differences. They tend tend to become more affluent, and as they become more affluent, they tend to do less physical activity. They're not out in fields working 10, 12 hours a day. Um, Their caloric content goes up. The type of calories they're consuming goes up. Their carb content tends to go down, and they eat more fat and more. Um, protein. They also change the type of carbohydrates they consume. So they start consuming a lot more sugar and a lot more refined, highly refined grains. Instead of brown rice, they'll be consuming white rice, 
need all these changes could be responsible for these Western diseases. Then you get into this Occam's razor question, what's the simplest possible hypothesis? <clears throat> the argument I'm, I make and will make in my sugar book is that it's basically sugar. Sucrose and high fructose corn to these fructose rich sugars. So you add sugar to any population's diet, you will eventually get obesity, diabetes, heart disease, etc. It may take 10 years, it may take several generations. So where are you standing then when it comes to glycemic index? Because it would seem to me that glycemic index is a part of the narrative that you just described, this shift to more sugar, to more refined starches, that sounds like a, a, a shift to a higher glycemic index diet. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? So the question is, how much of their, I have friends I respect and people who think, you know, we're 95% in agreement and yet they would say that the problem with sugar is it's just another high glycemic index food. So it's not about the unique effect of the fructose components. When we say sugar, we mean a molecule, sucrose, that's, that's half glucose, half fructose. Uh, the glucose is uh, released into your circulation. Virtually every cell in your body will oxidize, use it for fuel. It stimulates insulin secretion directly from the pancreas. <clears throat> the fructose is metabolized primarily in your liver. And right. There's been pretty good evidence for 50 or 60 years that by your liver can't deal with the amounts of fructose that we dump on it with modern diets, particularly in sugary beverages, and the speed at which it has to metabolize that fructose. And it does so in this high insulin environment from the glucose half of the sugar. So the question is the glucose raising blood sugar, it means it's got a high glycemic index. The fructose has a low glycemic index because it doesn't directly affect blood sugar. Um, my suspicion is, and the, the hypothesis I put forth in my sugar book, is that sugar sort of creates the environment in which the other carbohydrates become deleterious. So you have sugar causing insulin resistance because of the effect on the liver. And then the other carbohydrates stimulate insulin secretion directly. And once you have this condition called insulin resistance, you're going to have to stimulate more insulin. And now you have these metabolic disturbances that associate so closely with obesity and type 2 diabetes. Right, because so, now sugar itself, if you particularly if we're talking about table sugar, is not by a long shot the highest glycemic index food that a person, or I, I use the term food quite loosely there, that a person's going to consume. But what you're saying is, of course, the fructose component, which is roughly half of the sugar, um, or table sugar in in um, specific terms, is reducing, it's giving you a false sense of security. So that in fact, glycemic index may be entirely the wrong measure for us to be looking at if it turns out that fructose is the, is the bad guy. And that's quite I wouldn't say entirely the wrong because you can learn something from every measure of how the body responds. 
But if you focus on glycemic index, one of the points I make in my book is beginning in when the glycemic index concept was invented and promoted beginning around 1980-81, it made sugar look relatively harmless because it has a relatively low glycemic index. Sugar looks great on the, on the glycemic index charts. Bread doesn't look so good. Right. So now you look at you know, white flour, highly refined flour, that looks bad, but that doesn't have a lot of fructose. So, you know, again, this gets to be the limits of science. When you look at populations and how they change with Western diets, the sugars and the white flour tends to arrive simultaneously. So yes. you don't see populations that only eat sugar and don't get these high glycemic index processed carbs. Um, you tend to see them both hit diets simultaneously. The closest we have to that, again, now is Southeast Asia, where because they were eating a lot of rice to begin with, which has a relatively high glycemic index, you added wheat flour and sugar. So the GI glycemic index would not have changed that much, but now they've got sugar in their diet with the fructose effect of the sugar. Um, but then you can make another argument. Maybe the wheat flour is bad because of the gluten or the glycoproteins or some other explanation. And, you know, it's where you run into problems with these observational studies, observations. And the best you could say is, this is my simplest hypothesis. And it seems to explain everything we see. And that hypothesis, that I, my simplest hypothesis, you add sugar to these diets and then the carbohydrates become problematic and the higher the glycemic index of the carbs, the easier they are to digest, the more of a problem they are. Uh, so some people, sorry, keep going. I was going to say some people are going to benefit just by removing, you know, the sugar and they'll be fine. Yes. And other people are going to benefit by removing the sugar and the high GI carbs and other people are going to have to remove the sugar and all the carbs depending on their, their, you know, their, their baseline biology. The other problem is that, you know, with Western diets and lifestyle comes Western packaged processed foods. So if I tell you I'm going to put you on a zero sugar diet and you go to the supermarket and you avoid everything with sugar in it, you're going to avoid virtually everything except green leafy vegetables and animal products. That's right. There's very little you can buy in the supermarket that right now that doesn't have sugar in it. And there's yes. probably 40 or 50,000 products in the average decent sized supermarket. It does. Yeah. So you're going to, you might, I'm hoping you're going to get healthier if I give you this advice, but we don't actually know that you got healthier because you avoided the sugar. Maybe you got healthier because you avoided all the high glycemic index carbs, or maybe you got healthier because when you avoided the sugar, you dramatically lowered the glycemic index of the diet you're consuming. It's tricky business. Right, because if the sugar is in your diet in an absolute form, even if you've managed to maintain a relatively low glycemic impact of that diet, you are still going to suffer the the consequences of the absolute amount of sugar that you're consuming. If I'm right, yes. Right. I mean, again, now you can pick another population. You pick populations that lived on very high fat, you know, basically 
diets that were almost exclusively animal products, like the Inuit or uh, pastoral populations like the Maasai warriors. And when those populations are um, uh, brought into contact with Western foods, which means sugar and refined grain, they still tend to continue eating what they were eating all along. So they still get a lot of animal products, but now they get significant sugar and you know, some wheat products, some grains, and you see this explosions of the same diseases. So, right. <clears throat> you know, if they only got the sugar, that would be interesting. So if you took a group of Inuits who were living on, you know, seal meat and caribou and, you know, whales and whatever else, sort of early 19th century Inuits and just gave them sugar, would you see a significantly different disease distribution than if you gave them sugar and highly high GI grains? Would you see a different distribution if you gave them just, you know, uh, powdered sugar or sugary beverages? And those are the kinds of questions. They're interesting thought experiments, but you can't answer the questions. You just don't know what the answers are. I have to say that I, as a communicator, I think that this entire subject is actually quite riddled with language problems and that uh, getting our terminology right as we move forward, certainly at the societal level, might help. I particularly look at your point about sugar and flour traveling together and that you go back to the work of Weston A. Price, uh, which was such a an amazing example of what was happening when sugar and flour was arriving into populations who had only ever eaten a traditional diet and the incredible negative health impacts that they were having. I tend to look at sugar and flour as as under the heading of provisions. They were they were uh, easily portable cat calories that enabled an empire to build and really I think in the future there's got to be a point where we start to define food as separate from these provisions that that yes you can survive on them for a certain amount of time they will give you a, a some kind of um, energy to live on but they will kill you eventually if you keep if you keep eating them. I just think we may have to start being a little more um, specific about the language that we use. Um, yeah, and I would agree with you. There's a lot of problems with how we discuss nutrition, a lot of problems, obviously, in how the science is done, a lot of problems. You know, we've got ourselves into this issue where these huge corporations, and we talk about these industries as though they don't employ hundreds of thousands, millions of people in our countries who need employment, who, you know, all of whom think they're doing God's work, basically. Right. Um, so we have to start with, you know, kind of frank and honest discussions about what we know and what we don't know. We have to start, I believe, with the frank and honest discussions about what can we learn and how can we learn it, and then, um, you know, how to... I don't think processed food, that we can't feed our populations without the industries. Without not these. right now. We can't. Absolutely not. Yeah. So how do you change these foods? How do you label them? Um, you know, my feeling has been if the right information was out there. People really understood 
what was going on, if the scientists had done their job right. Um, that's step one. And now step two is shifting the food environment. Again, at, at my not-for-profit, Nusi, we talked about there was a default food environment, which is these, what you see in the modern supermarket. There's a default thought environment, which is what we've been taught about these effects. Those are these three pillars of, of um, you know, nutritional thinking. So we have to change the default thought environment so that we all understand everyone in the environment and the society understands why they're getting fat, why they're getting diabetic or pre-diabetic, what the risks are and what diets, you know, how they have to eat to prevent that from happening, what foods they have to be avoid, what foods perhaps they should be consuming. That has to change. And then the, the default food environments, when we go shopping, it has to be easy and relatively inexpensive to buy foods that won't uh, accelerate our demise. I don't need you know, we're going to die. We're all going to die. Clearly, we want to mm. live as long as we, we can. We want to die as healthily as we can. <laughs> so all this has to change. And, you know, we're all, I mean, we're part of that happening. What I find fascinating is there's an equal, there's a large proportion. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who want exactly what I want, which is a healthy world with, where people are lean and healthy and happy as can be, and yet um, they think I'm part of the problem and I think they're part of the problem. So we have to understand even why we think differently about these issues. I think the, one of the things that I find most fascinating, this gets back to this question of you know, caloric balance. Beyond doubt, we have these massive epidemics of obesity and diabetes that are unprecedented. They're going to overwhelm our healthcare systems and arguably bring down our economies in the process. When this tidal wave breaks, um, it's going to be ugly, and yet we don't And have it's coming, you're saying, whether we like it or not. It's coming whether we like it or not. And yet if this was an epidemic of the Zika virus or Ebola or even HIV, there'd be these massive scientific uh, uh, you know, uh, panels and government committees and investigatory committees trying to figure out what it is about these disease states we don't understand because we've completely failed our public health efforts to, uh, to resolve these epidemics has completely failed. And we don't ask those questions. We don't see those committees. We don't see those investigations because we assume that people just eat too much. They just can't say no. Right. So they don't even go there. They don't even really look at it in any depth because the people who are becoming obese are simply classified as not very good people because they're, they're not doing their part. Exactly. They're not eating in moderation like I am. They're not running. I know a very smart researcher at the University of California, Berkeley. Basically, he's a marathon runner. He's about five foot nine, 135 pounds, and he thinks if everybody ran marathons like he did, they wouldn't be obese either. Right. And it's that kind of thinking on an institutional public health government level that has brought us to this problem, and we have to reverse it. We just have to um, start asking these questions. Did we make mistakes? Clearly, we failed as a society to stem this tide. 
we should be hedging our bets by trying to figure out, trying basically having investigative committees do what I spent the last 15 years, 20 years of my life doing, which is asking, did we make a mistake? And if so, how do we fix it? It begs the question, do we need to stop talking about calories altogether? Should we be taking calories off labels? Are they just the wrong measure for us to be looking at? And by doing so, could we then refocus people's minds back into the actual nutrition and the nutrients that they're consuming, which is where the attention obviously needs to be? Um, yeah, I mean, calories, it's a very nice way to measure quantity of something you're consuming, but even then it can be incredibly misguided. We all know, I don't know about Australia and the U.S., if you buy a product and you look at the nutrition label, the first thing you have to see is what the portion size is. What they right. describe is the portion size. There's going to be so many calories. And it might not be so you could buy a 20-ounce uh, you know, sugary beverage and the portion size is 10 ounce. And then what you're reading about is the effect of the macronutrients, the carbohydrate and fat and salt and you know, sodium and content of half of the bottle. So why not just say, look, this bottle has, you know, X number of calories or X number of grams or X number of ounces. And in that you have these, this much sugar. Um, again, the problem is, and this is where those pillars come in, as long as we believe saturated fat is the problem, if you focus on sugar, right. a significant part of the public health community is going to think you're focusing on the wrong thing. If we think sugar is the problem and saturated fat, they're both the problem, then you should say both. It's a multi-pronged effort that's required, isn't it? I watch what's going on in public health policy across a number of nations. And I have to say that the, the foods that are high in sugar, for instance, I'll give you an Australian example, which is the um, health star rating that is applied to all packaged goods in Australia. If you're selling um, Kellogg's Frosted Flakes or uh, Pop-Tarts, then you can get the highest or one of the highest health star ratings because that health star rating is guided by public health policy is is predicated on the assumption that as long as it's low in fat, then it's got to be good for you. And as long as it's got a certain amount of fiber in it. Meanwhile, the same health star rating where it applied to raw nuts or avocados would give them the lowest rating. And so this is just a phenomenally complicated issue to try and work out at a public health policy level. And uh, certainly um, I look at the corporations that are putting foods into supermarkets that they are, they have to play a tricky game, right? They're on the one hand, if they don't, if they, if the demand isn't there, they're going out of business and the supermarket's throwing them off the shelf. So we need people, ordinary people, to understand what's really a very complicated issue at the moment. Meanwhile, the medical profession doesn't really grasp it. Certainly your, your uh, general practitioner, if you go along to them, probably doesn't grasp this. And public health policy is, is still in 1985. Yeah, and you're... Completely right. I mean, it's funny, even, um, you know, my house, my, I used to say, tell my wife, if a food makes a health claim, and here I'll give the journalist Michael Pollan credit, <clears throat> if it makes a health claim on it, don't buy it. 
And if it, the only thing I really care about is look at how much sugar's in it. Because chances are, if it's making a health claim, it's re reduced the fat and it has sugar in it to replace it. Um, I mean, there's some commonsensical things you could do, but they still run into these issues of what constitutes a healthy diet. And, you know, that science is as confused and cocked up as anything that I could imagine. Um, actually, I could never have imagined as bad as it turns out to, I think, <laughs> be. So, and that's why, you know, my goal is fix the science. I'm going to tell people what I think is true. And then the coffee hut is, you know, I, it's my guess based on my understanding and however, you know, however much natural intelligence I've got. And, but the science has to be fixed. We have to know better. And again, the problem is you can't know for sure. So if it's not saturated fat causing these disease states, then get it off. I don't want to know how much saturated fat's in it. And, and every aspect of our attempts to eat healthy runs into this problem. So if I tell you that carbohydrates make you fat, let's say you're very predisposed to get fat. Right. Um, so I think, you know, in your case, I'm, you've got to eat a very low carbohydrate diet. We want to get all the carbs out of your diet because that's the best chance you'll have of being lean and healthy. Um, leaving aside whether or not this is a diet you want to eat for the rest of your life. This is the best dietary intervention for making you lean and healthy. But then the question is, what do we replace the carbohydrates with? Okay, so if we right, replace right. the carbon, we can't replace it with protein because you can't consume more than 20, 25% protein. And it's quite likely that you'll have problems from the protein you consume because the protein breaks down into amino acids, which then get converted to glucose, and you end up, you might still end up over-secreting insulin because you have this serious problem. So we want to replace the carbs you eat with fat. Now the question is what kind of fats? In an ideal world, we want you to eat real food. So real food means nuts, avocados, and a lot of animal products where you'll find the most fats. And now you've got saturated fats. So if I tell you to eat a very low-carb diet or Place it with fat, I'm going to be telling you to do a lot of saturated fat. And if you think saturated fat is going to kill you or your doctor does, it's not going to be considered a healthy diet. Even though you might lose weight, your blood pressure will come down, your waist circumference will come down, you'll become more insane. All these otherwise apparently beneficial things are likely to happen to you. Your doctor is going to say, oh, you're eating a lot of saturated fat. It's going to raise your LDL cholesterol, you're going to get heart disease, and you're going to regret it. Um, we and have to that's what's playing out, and that's what's playing out right now. And as somebody who watches uh, on, a, on a very broad scale what's going into shopping baskets in the developed world and in the developed nations, I can tell you that low-fat offers low fat foods low fat milks margarines 
um, all the rest of the uh, the low fat narrative is what's going into people's shopping baskets primarily. Certainly, there's a shift to whole foods. There's a shift to real foods. Butter's picking up. Whole milk is picking up. But this is still very early days. And I think uh, the the question is, you know, if I if I go out and and researched you, for instance, research Gary Torbs and the information about calories, I can tell you that probably close to 99 out of 100 people will not have heard about it. It's been very hard, clearly, to get that word out beyond those few mavens in the um, nutrition industry, to the extent that public health policy uh, advisors seem to be still relatively unaware of the fact that fat and uh, and the fear of fat has been the underlying factor uh, for all of this problem, if you ask me, that the the Ansel Keys and the the demonization of saturated fat really set the stage for this whole epidemic of these diseases of civilization, as you've called them. Um, it, I'm not sure. Um, I'm just not sure how we get the message across to them. Well, we're doing it. The big thing you have to remember is that it's a slow process. And as a slow, you know, it's we're making progress. I mean, we've made, the way I like to think about it is, uh, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 0.0000000001% of the relevant authorities, physicians, had an understanding of this. And now we've gotten to maybe one or 2%. So right. we've had this enormous relative increase, but it's still a tiny absolute increase in the number of people who get it. And there's still a huge amount of controversy. If you Google my name, you'll find as many people saying I'm a quack right. as people saying that I'm not. And so the question is, you know, again, how do you resolve that? No, Nobody out there, I'm a journalist. Nobody should have to take diet advice from a journalist. But how do we get the message across? And it's again, it's a slow and constant process, and there's an enormous number of forces working against us, including you know, legitimate skepticism that we might be wrong. Um, and again, it's it's you know, you just we Day to day, you do, you do podcasts. I try to get researchers interested in doing studies and then get the studies done right. And even that has turned out to be an enormous <clears throat> challenge. Um, again, you've got a whole world of people who are convinced that we all know how to eat healthy. And these are probably the most influential nutrition authorities. And eating healthy is, you know, whole grains and fruits and vegetables and, <clears throat> and lean meats as a sort of side dish and lean fishes and um, you know those people are enormously influential it makes a lot of sense what they say except that they're talking about what it would take diets that might be generically healthy diets for populations that had didn't have the metabolic disturbances as the obesity and diabetes we see today so again you've got You've got a lot of competing forces, a lot of competing uh, legitimate opinions. I don't think there's enough understanding of why and how we differ. I don't think there's enough respect for why and how we differ in our opinions. 
things. And, you know, again, I think a lot of our jobs is to, um, I, th I think the industry is moving towards this generically healthy diet. I think the beverage industry sees the writing on the wall and clearly they're trying to diversify. Um, but, you know, we have a problem. We, we, <laughs> right. And it's, it's um, and it's and the flip side is as we can see it's only one of the many serious, massive problems we have in the world today. So a lot of the smartest people are focusing on other issues that, you know, are equally as important. Well, just to draw this discussion to a close, I do want to make the point that you, you mentioned that uh, that you know people maybe are thinking, and certainly government policy advisors are thinking they don't want to take health advice from journalists. But I do think that it is journalist the journalist who is the is the person most likely to expose some of the cracks in the system. I'm looking at you, I'm looking at Nina Teicholz specifically. And and the fact that we we did move into this very strong belief system in terms of the way the the scientific assumptions were being clung to and the discussion I had recently with Professor Tim Noakes, we talked at some length about the fact that scientists would just have their careers ruined if they questioned that scientific orthodoxy about saturated fats and about calories and about carbohydrates. So in fact, the journalist, I think, was a critical part of this process to, in fact, move the whole discussion to a new place and set the, set the stage for open-minded scientists to step in and start re-examining what they thought had been decided science. Well, and I agree with you on that. I mean, it's, it's, we can't underestimate the problems. You know, when you, you grow up and you mature and your career, career is built on, you know, within an institution, and everyone you know and everyone you like and everyone you collaborate with believes, in effect, one way. It's extremely difficult. It's like a, a religion. And, you know, you belong to a church and everyone in your neighborhood belongs to that church. And should you start believing in a different religion, you are going to alienate yourself and isolate yourself from everything you hold dear. It's virtually impossible Gary, um, as a last word on this, I, I would just like you to say, what do you think is the is uh, the advice you'd give to people who are trying to lose fat right now? Is it simply to eat a, a whole foods diet, limit starches, and remove sugar from their diet? Um, well, I think again, it's it's an individual thing. We all, you know, if you're a person who puts on fat easily. <clears throat> You may have become one and weren't when you were younger, then I would recommend first getting rid of the sugars, the sweets in your diet, and then probably, you know, virtually all carbohydrates other than fat and green leafy vegetables. And then, um, you know, seeing what you, your body can tolerate. But again, it's, it's hard advice to give. Um, right. We just don't know enough. We just don't know. But if you start, you know, I was a smoker. Um, I could probably smoke five cigarettes a day and remain healthy, but I can't smoke five cigarettes a day and stay at five cigarettes a day. So I just quit smoking. I don't want to get lung cancer. I quit smoking. Um, 
the diets with the greatest, the, the longest histories in this field is obesity diets have pretty much replaced all the carbohydrates in the diets with fat. Right. It's with the exception of, you know, when you find the green leafy vegetables, um, they have the best, the longest track record and the best track record for better or cooler. So that's, that's what I recommend. Gary, you, you've been very generous with your time and I know you need to um, get going here. So uh, I would like to thank you so much for taking the time out to have this discussion with me. Well, thank you, Melody. Uh, thanks for being a great host and I informed you. Thank you. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. I'm Melody and this Patterson Meta. Is reinventing and this the supermarket. Is reinventing the supermarket. <laughs>